we're recording. So yeah, tell, yeah. yeah, this is the level check, but just tell us a story about... Okay, you want a story about yeah. uh, escapades, of which I've had many in my life. <laughs> we were in um, Botswana, and um, I was with a guide who was an amazing character, completely nuts, as my wife would say, similar to me. And um, he, she said to him one day, the, the classic safari is you go out in the morning, come back for lunch and have a rest, and then you go out again in the evening. And I don't do the resting bit. So she said, you know, he's irritating me. Could you take him out? He was up for it. Mm-hmm. So we went off in a canoe, uh, two of us in one canoe, and like a sort of Canadian canoe. Sure. And there was another chap in another canoe with us. And off we went, and we came to a channel. And at the other end of the channel were six hippos in the water. And he said, oh, dear, you've got a problem, got a problem. He said, oh, my God, they're coming. They're coming <laughs> for us. So he said, hang on, hang on, let me just put it back into the... So he backed it into the reeds. Now, he's at the back, uh-huh. right? He said, we're, we're fine, we're fine. And I said, Brian, you may be fine. I'm in the middle of the bloody channel, <laughs> and they're coming at me. <laughs> and I was holding a paddle uh-huh. at my feet with my cameras. And I thought, I need to get a photograph of this. But with hippos... To find out where they are under the water, you tap the edge of the canoe every now and again, uh-huh. and they pop up because they hear the sound. If I put my paddle down and it makes a clatter, the hip is going to come up. up. So this is not a good plan. So I'm sitting there holding my paddle, watching them come under the water at me. And they were literally heading for my bum underneath it. And I actually, one of the many times I was sitting there thinking, is this the moment I die? Was it the moment you died? And I watched them... <laughs> sail underneath my bottom and Brian was like they come David, David, David. <laughs> Brian I can see they're bloody coming <laughs> and the bubbles went right under my arse and they popped up the other side ten minutes later we were sitting in our canoes in the middle of a herd of elephants in the water charging at us throwing things at us and what have you amazing experience and I'm alive congratulations and I have a life long experience of that sort of stupid situation that's, anyway, that's the best sound check I think we've ever done <laughs> In the depth of the forest, an old oak root, the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches, the ivy her mantle threw when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, Hello, I'm David Oakes and welcome to Trees A Crowd. This is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think our natural world is incredible. For those who find their muse in cocks crows or cows moos, I'm going to talk with people dedicated to or inspired by our natural world. Today, we're back in the studio to talk to wildlife photographer David Fetters. David has been a finalist in the Wildlife Photographer of the Year at the Natural History Museum many times and has devoted much of his time recently to working with children and educating them about where we fit into the world's ecosystem. I mean, everyone's already met you through the introduction, so I feel like it, <laughs> we've got a, we've got a wildlife photographer. You might have worked that out by now. I, all I want to do is sort of set you off and just to hear your anecdotes, but I, I think we should probably get a bit more sort of get some structure, to get it. more context. I guess I'll start with the fact that I, I go to the Wildlife Photographer of the Year exhibition at the Natural History Museum every year like a pilgrimage. I think many people do. Mm. It seems every year they extend the exhibition and tour it to a few more places, and it's. It's stunning. It's absolutely stunning. The breadth of of work of our natural world. Of what, what I've particularly started to enjoy more is actually the junior sections as well. Yes. When you see inspiring eight year olds taking pictures that mm. are just out mm. of this world. 
Just before I ask you about where you started personally, do you remember when you first went to that exhibition? Yes, I do. It was the year 2000. Um, I was uh, had a big birthday in 1999. I said to the kids, I don't want a party. I don't want any presents. I just want you to come on holiday one last time with us because you know, they don't come on holiday anymore. And I said, we're going on a safari. Are you paying? Yes, then we'll come. So off we went. And I remember sitting in a Land Rover. I hadn't started the walking bits that I do now then. And I turned to my son. I said, I could do this for 11 months of the year. The 12th month, unfortunately, I'd come back and pay the bills and sort things out. I could just do, I could immerse myself in this completely Mm -hmm. because I felt and I feel completely at one in the wilderness, particularly if I'm left completely by myself, which I do. I go walking in the bush in in Zimbabwe by myself at times. Um, I drive by myself at times. And, you know, two years ago I was in Mongolia walking down these valleys at night completely by myself. The local people went crazy because there are rabid wolves around sure. here. Fine. You know, it's just utter, utter peace and silence, which we don't get. And trying to inspire another generation to fix the mess that my and previous generations have made is really one of the things that drives me. This is a message I'm trying to bring back. Uh-huh. Look at what is there. Can you imagine my grandchildren might never see a lion? Yeah. I mean, that, yeah, that I mean, is it's, terrifying. It's a reality. I mean, we've lost the white rhino now. I think yeah. there's an... I think no, the white rhinos are around. It's the black it's rhino the black that's rhino. in danger. There's yeah. one female in the wild and a couple in captivity, but there are no male... There's a, there's a northern black rhino, which I think is northern black, which the last one died the other day. It's like the Galapagos turtles. And, you know, we always have this last one. And it always has to be a male. And um, yeah. there's no female to to you know mate with or anything like that. Um, it's a nightmare. There was the awful story as well the other day at London Zoo about the... Yeah, the tigers. And tigers. Yeah. yeah. And you're going, like, even our best-laid efforts to yes. try and keep yes. a species alive after having almost destroyed it. Yeah. Can we go wrong. But I mean, that's, nat- that's nature in the raw. Isn't it? You know, and I, I, I don't know what happened, but I mean, you know, thinking outside the box, you know, perhaps they hadn't been together long enough. It was a territorial mm-hmm. dispute. Perhaps she wasn't in season, so yeah. he wasn't ready for another day. All that sort of stuff. I don't know. They'll, they'll examine it. So let's, let's start at the very beginning. Yep. Um, you grew up for the first few years of your life in India. I did. I was born in Calcutta. Yeah. And you were there for about six years? Six years, yeah. What do you remember about those first six years? Oh, apart from the immense privilege of living at the tail end of the Raj. Um, we were in 19... Uh, I was born in 1949, so I uh, came back here in 55, I think it was. Um, I remember... I mean, there's things that really stand out in my mind, the Lango monkeys and stuff like that, in the house. Uh, and, of course, at my age, they're the same size as me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember walking... Um, I'm going to use this word, the servants' quarters. Mm -hmm. We had 18 servants who lived in with their families. They lived in servants' quarters, and I was walking down there to play with some of the kids down there. I had a very uh, egalitarian father, which was wonderful. That's where I get my total abhorrence of racism, what have you, from. Thank goodness. And I was walking down to play with the kids, and there was this monkey just above my head on a roof, baring its teeth at me. I remember standing there looking at it and not running away. Uh Now, that perhaps has stayed with me in my 70th year now. Maybe uh, you should have learned your lesson back perhaps then. Perhaps I should have. <laughs> perhaps my wife should have seen that and not married me. Um, but I remember the monkeys. I remember going to the zoo, riding the elephants there. I'm not a great zoo fan of the old-fashioned zoos. Uh-huh. Um, modern zoos are obviously... Changing and research- evolving. Yeah, changing and evolving and researching. And they do a tremendous amount of work. So I do not wish to be disparaging about them. Uh-huh. But I remember going there and seeing the tigers. 
in the cages. And I remember them pacing. Why are they pacing? Well, I mean, it's like a sort of repetitive strain injury. I mean, mm-hmm. they're, just, they're just in a catatonic state. How can you cage an animal that's supposed to be roaming over tens of miles and what have you? It's, an in, uh, it's a discussion I've been having since starting this podcast with a few of my friends is, mm. is the value of zoos in, in our modern world. And I, I'm a supporter of them in general because of what they do for conservation and education. Yes, yes. Um, the old-fashioned ones when they're small and whatever. But even the smaller ones in this country are branching out. Even Bristol Zoo's now got the wild place, so they've yeah. got more space to allow the animals yeah. to be free. And so few of them are captured in the wild and they're put in a zoo. Most of them are born to captivity. Yes. They're and no, no different. Survive. So but their instincts are still there. The instincts are still there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you on that. So, the, so with these monkeys, these were semi-domesticated? because no, they were no, just completely wild. Completely wild. Langua monkeys. It was a very funny story. My mother was sitting in the drawing room. She looked across and going into the big dining room, there was a, um, a snake lying across the dining room floor. So, like a draft you know, excluded. Like the, I used to absolutely, the 80s yeah, except, except, the door, that's right, <laughs> except the door was open. And so, you know, being my mother, she rang the bell. You, know, you don't do it yourself in those days. And the, sort of one of the servants came on and she said, you know, pointed, oh, my goodness. So he goes and gets his latte. A latte is a stick. Mm-hmm. Goes up and hits it to break its, break its neck, etc. Unfortunately, it turned out to be a monkey's tail. <laughs> <laughs> you think when he got closer, he'd seen the hair. I mean, there aren't hairy, hair, there many, are many hairy snakes. There are <laughs> not many hairy snakes. And, of course, he got quite a fright because this thing turned around. It was not happy. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I, climbing over the house and whatever in the streets. Um, you know, my in the monsoons in Calcutta, our garden. I mean, a huge house, an enormous garden, mm-hmm. and the garden would flood. I, in my mind, for six feet, probably about a foot. And my father would say, you know, off you take your clothes off, and you go. And sw-. My brother, older brother, and I would go and swim. Sure. I mean, there must be rats and snakes and all sorts of things in that water. Um, apart from the sewage and all that sort of stuff in those days. Um, <laughs> so it's fair to say that you grew up uh, one with nature in the world. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a petri dish of botulism. <laughs> <laughs> I've got an image of you sort of like, like a, a Mowgli running around. Sort oh, of. Totally. And I was fascinated by insects and creatures. One of, particularly one, one of our grandchildren is, is like that. And I spent time with him going and finding wood lice and, mm-hmm. and all sorts of stuff, um, infusing that in him. It's wonderful. This is, this is a really stupid question. But did you have a pet? Uh, Yes, in India. I remember um, I must have been about four. It's one of my earlier memories of burying Jane, our dog. Uh, It was a boxer Uh with her 11 puppies. Oh, helping, the, helping the st- they dug the grave. I helped carry this towel, blue and white striped towel. They buried her on. I'm four, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm pushing her to the bottom. I remember her lying there, and they lay all the puppies at her teats, all in a row. It was so beautiful, you know. It was incredibly sad, uh-huh. but, but after, also motherhood right to the grave. It was an extraordinarily powerful memory to imprint itself on my mind now so much of what i've i spoke to you on the phone last week so much of the of your story in general is about family yes um and not just its relationship with the natural world but the families within the natural world so it's sort of it's quite nice that it starts with that image of hugely um so you spent six years in india yes what brought you back school my father's um terrible illness he was desperately ill, and uh, we came back when I was six. I was sent off to boarding school at eight. Um, you know, I didn't get a vote in that. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember even at the age of eight walking around the school thinking, I wonder if this is the day they come and tell me he died. Mm-hmm. 
he has died. But he didn't. He died when I was 16, still at school, but didn't die until then. But he was always an ill man. So that's what brought us back because the climate and the pressure of work out there would have meant that he would have died much for emphysema, heart attacks, all sorts of stuff like that. They smoked sure. 80 cigarettes a day in, all those, in those days. Um, so we came back here and we then settled in England. And, and was that a shock to come from swimming in the swamps with rats and feces to going to boarding school? Or would you say they're quite similar experiences? Well, I was, I was pretty feral, I uh-huh. think. Um, and uh, anarchic and what have you. And that remains to this day. And you know, if if it says no exit, I go through it because I'm only going one way, aren't I? It's one way, but I'm only going one way. So, you know, always, you know, I used to say to our children when they went to school, my wife kills me, um, rules are for other people. Mm-hmm. They're for you to question. Uh, and you have to take the consequences of questioning, but you need to think about it. So you make your own decisions. Uh, and it's a lot of what I'm doing when I'm in the bush, you know, making decisions all the time as to whether I need to avoid this situation or whether I need to be in this situation. How far can I push this? How far can I not push this? Mm-hmm. You know, recognizing the body language. You know, I've talked already about a lot of the body language I see happens here. We are just mammals walking around in clothes. Yeah. You throw us out. You know, look at Syria and all these other places. You throw us out into the wilderness. Everything goes. The veneer of society goes. We look for shelter. We look for food. And finally, we think about procreating to get someone to look after us when we're old. We Last week, we were talking to um, a taxidermist called Polly Morgan. Yeah. And her next exhibition is going to literally be about that, about veneers, about really, the yeah. surface level of society. Yeah. Now, she'll almost certainly use the skins of animals to metaphorically represent Good. those ideas. All I know is what I just said to you, and I'm very excited about seeing it. And I think the more we accept the fact that we're animals enclosed the more we might be able to do to make sure that we don't destroy this world. Yeah, and relate to it. I mean, look at Hurricane Katrina. What happened? Their society fabric was destroyed. Mm-hmm. They turned on each other. Rape, theft, violence, all in that sort of, what have you, in that hippodrome or wherever it was, the mm-hmm. Astrodome they were in. Um, and they reverted to nature. Yeah. Um, and I can remember at school, uh, I must have been about 15, I was walking through one of the dormitories, and I don't know why, and I'd been, obviously been studying National Geographic or something. They were doing experiments on rats. They put them in a box, a whole bunch of them, mm-hmm. and the rats were quite happy moving around. They then put the box smaller, smaller, and at a certain point, they turned on each other and became violent. And that was a microcosm of school. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, this is just like here. We're under pressure, always beatings, and, you know, I was abused and all that sort of stuff, you know, sexually, you know, prep school and blah, blah, blah. He never writes, he never calls. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can't let your past define your future. Uh-huh. Um, but I remember thinking, well, prison, that's what prisons, you know, male prisons, no wonder they're violent. They're under stress. And so you remove that veneer and of society and... You, you mentioned quite a lot in that last message. Do you think that society's got better since then? I mean, do you think our veneers have got... I guess what I'm saying is the veneer of society, that of organised politics, of democracy, of capitalism controlling our futures, do you, do you think over the last 50 years we have got better at removing the animals from us or every attempt to remove the animal from us has led to problems that we're about to face now? It's a very interesting question. I think we have not lived in as divided a world as we have. And I'm talking about geopolitically, uh, economically. You know, there's a huge division. And there is also a huge division between the, if I can use the words, believers and non-believers mm-hmm. in 
the damage we are doing to the planet, whether it be climate change or animals or insects or whatever it is. There are those who are saying, this is absolute rubbish. You know, of course it's all right, they'll be fine. And there are those like us fighting with our little voices to try and get it changed. Your 16, 17, 18, boarding school has come to an end. Um, yeah, 18, I didn't go to university, had no idea what I wanted to do. So and then I, your father passed away. He had, he had died, yeah, and so the one bloke who was going to help me had um, shuffled off, which is a bit, bit irritating, to say the least. And so you know, everybody else I was at school with knew exactly what they were going to do, lawyers and what have you, and I was as thick as a brick. <laughs> so there was no point in even considering anything like that. So I... I joined a hotel group and started cooking. Uh-huh. And then I thought, well, this is a big, pretty good wheeze because they're paying me. <laughs> and um, I haven't poisoned anybody yet. <laughs> and so I'll do hotel management. So I went to hotel school and I then worked as part of that. It was a sandwich course. I worked in the Swiss Center in Leicester Square, uh-huh. which, of course, is not there anymore, four restaurants. So I'd worked in a French-based kitchen, which is very different to a Swiss-based kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't go into the details. It's not relevant today. Um, but I decided that was hopeless. Um, you know, this is not a life that I want to lead you yeah. know, in hotel life. So I then chucked that up and thought, I have no idea what I want to do now. Everyone's going, well, he started in India, and we know he became a wildlife photographer. So at what point... Did he go and start exploring the world? Okay. And it's not now. It, now you you have your first trip to Mexico. Well, what happened was that in, I then I left there and I joined an insurance company. And after three years there, I found that everybody uh, older than me was being paid more than me. Despite Which is never a nice feeling, no, is it? No, no. It, was, it wasn't just misogynism. It was just across <laughs> the board, ageism. <laughs> and so I went and said, are you going to do anything about this? No, we can't. One of my – and I've written a book about this trip – one of my flatmates had been let down on a trip taking a Land Rover. So you're 21? I was 23. 23. Well, 22 when I made the decision, but 23 mm. when, when, went. when I went. Um, and so I said, well, you know, driving a Land Rover to Australia, I'll come with you. And we chatted about it. And uh, I hadn't discussed this with my girlfriend, now my current wife. We decided we would go via South America because no one else was. Mm-hmm. So again, the... Let's be different. Let's go through the exit. The anarchic yeah, different. Definitely. Yeah, exactly. So we shipped it across to Mexico on a cargo ship sailing with it, and we lived in it for a year, traveling around North, Central, and South America, working illegally in the States. Sorry, Trump. Um, and <laughs> picking grapes with the Wex. That's Mexico. your visa gone. He's Absolutely gone. Donald Trump is there. He's, <laughs> yeah, he he's turned will. off Fox and Friends. He and he's listening Leave it to in. Trees I don't care. <laughs> um, yeah, and... Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was a lucky to get back alive, arrested four times, guns up the nose, waking up at night with a gun up my... We're living in the Land Rover or sleeping by it on the road or in the, in the bush. Mm-hmm. Um, and condors, all sorts of stuff that I saw on that, which reawakened my boyhood of 4.30 in the morning, walking around the garden, following squirrels and listening to them, chucking to each other and little birds. But you weren't photographing at this stage, you were writing. I had, a, I had a, No, I, I wasn't. I, I had no money, not mm-hmm. a bean, not a bean. We lived on... I lost something like three stone on that trip um, and um, because we had virtually nothing. We had no money. Um, but it was great. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, fantastic. But no, I, I was taking photographs with a little Instamatic, which are complete rubbish. But sure. they're just a, they're a record of what was going on. But also you were writing back every single opportunity. Yes. I wrote a diary, a daily diary, and I wrote to my wife every single day, my girlfriend, every single day. And when we'd get to a town that had a post office, mm-hmm. I would wrap them up in an envelope, send it off, number it. And she was working in Greece in a hotel there. Um, and we had various post-restaurants to go to. And we were working up on a – we met some people in Nicaragua on a beach. They were running a farm for – which is part of the – they were Swiss. Mm-hmm. Swiss government's 
programme for underdeveloped countries, helping them improve stuff. And they said, come and work with us. So we went up there on this ranch up in the middle of nowhere, up in the Andes on the Altiplano. I mean, unbelievable. David, my um, travelling companion, also called David, um, he went off doing all sorts of stuff, um, having fun. I worked with the vet. Um, with the animals, inseminating cattle, um, herding the sheep, and doing all sorts of stuff like that, uh, it was incredible. It's it's a gap year. It was a, it was a late gap year. Yes, uh-huh. it was. It was absolutely fantastic. You know, and again, there are times when I thought this is it. You know, arrested in in Argentina, machine gun in my chest. I thought this is the the memory of those feelings of inseminating cattle, of, of being with animals, being. Yes. Uh, held at gunpoint. Is that the sensation that you feel now when you're out in the wild photographing? No. Is that sort of... No, it's... it's. Um, are you less afraid I, now? Um, no. Um, I control it. But I did then. Um, what happened was I came back at peace. And completely at peace. I left thinking I was going to be managing director of the world. I came back realising I wasn't going to be, but that wasn't a failure. Uh-huh. And uh, so, you know... I live in the now. You know, the, the, the past I can't do anything about and I can't do much about the future either. With the irony being that that mindset you put into action and meant that you, not straight away, you had numerous businesses beforehand, but you became incredibly successful in the insurance industry. Well, those are your words. I mean, people have said that to me and I was asked the other day, do I feel proud about what we did, uh, what I did? And I said, absolutely. I've never felt pride. I have great pride in what we as a company did. I started by myself, as did my partner. We hadn't met each other. We put our two businesses together because they were complementary. Mm-hmm. And when I retired 11 years ago, we had 200 staff and 11, 10 offices. Now that's 200 staff. That's 800 people probably being fed by what we're doing. That's taxes paid because we need to contribute to our society. Yes, we do. All those things that you know we should be doing if we've got a decent I really mean decent in the old-fashioned term, value system of honesty, integrity. I could have made much more money mm-hmm. by being the opposite to those. But integrity was at the core of everything I wanted our company to be. And you worked tooth and nail. You supported your family and your... How many children have you got? I've got three. Three children. Yeah, well, we have. And if I understand you correctly, you, you didn't really have holidays. Well, actually, I, I did. I mean, I worked. I worked uh, sometimes forty-eight hours on a stretch, sleepy in the office, and crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. But I mean, we've all done that. I don't have a monopoly on working hard. Mm-hmm. We all, well, many of us, work hard. I did try and see the children one or other end of the day, uh, if possible. But I would take my holidays. I would, you know, when I said my, I could take what I wanted. But towards the end, I was taking seven weeks in the year. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I went, I left my phone behind. I didn't, no contact. I didn't tell them where I was going. Sure. And. Often it was into you know wilderness. I started doing photography for a large travel company, doing upmarket holidays, and the, their Africa division, which was new. And so I would just tell them which countries I wanted to go to, and they sent me there. That job came alongside your existing job. Oh yes, yes, yeah. I, yeah. So yeah. you had a hobby that a paid, but also be scratched that itch of yes. Of the it, world. it it didn't pay uh, in that. Um, I uh, they bought pre-bought all the photographs off me, mm-hmm. but we paid for the holiday. So the photograph uh, okay. cost didn't cover the holiday. It was a contribution. They sound like they're onto a winner there. Uh, uh, well, whatever you know, that's fine. I, I don't mind. To me, it's not life. Isn't about the money. We just need enough. We don't need too much. And had you trained as a photographer? No, no. I taught myself the whole way through. So I started properly photographing because the question where this kicked off was when did it all start. Uh, had I been to the exhibition, when did I first go? It was 2000. And I looked at the photographs in that exhibition. I thought, I can do this. I've got photographs like this. Mm-hmm. And initially I said, 
within five years, I want a photograph up here. And when I failed at that, fine, never, ever give up. Before I die, I want a photograph up here. And that happened in 2011. So as I said, I think I've had over 40 images in what they might term the finals from uh-huh. which they then choose the 100 winners. But that 2011 was a With very... The one uh, that got shown, that's the one of the hippos. That's the hippo coming out of the water. Pushing up. It's, coming out it's, of the water. It's the epitome of what people imagine hippos do. Yes, yeah, I'm lying shot. on the mud by the by the water's edge photographing this chap staring at me. Was this on the same trip where you were either A, pushed out of the boat, or B, almost... No, no okay. different trip. So I go to Africa pretty much every year. I mean, last year I was in Ethiopia, Uganda, Zimbabwe. I also go, obviously, elsewhere, mm-hmm. India, Finland, wherever there are animals. Hungary, I was there last year photographing um, stuff, which was amazing, absolutely amazing. My father grew up with a dark room upstairs, and he was massively interested in the scientific after side of photography yeah, and doing yeah. it. Um, you sound like you're the polar opposite of that. It's yes. the experience of everything up until pressing the button, yes. and then the next opportunity to, to press the shutter again. And, I mean, you don't develop your own photos, I imagine. No, it's all digital. And, that would and, ruin chances to go off exploring somewhere else if you're back in a dark Well, that's room. right. Yeah. Why would I want to sit now in front of a computer? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not denigrating, I mean, Good developers just make art. There's a debate, isn't it, whether photography is an art or not, art form. But it is an art form. Every every expression of your creativity. But for me, the digital world has made many photographers very lazy because you just take the shots Uh and I can sort it out in the the, computer. I spend no more than 20 to 30 seconds editing each image. So if you started at the beginning of this century... Does that mean that you always started in digital, or did you start using film? No, I was starting with film. I was, okay. I was on these trips for this um, travel company. I was carrying 200 reels of film in a backpack of its own. Mm-hmm. Um, and quite often I would shoot pretty much all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, huge shoot rate. I mean, I'll come back with eight, ten thousand 10,000 images from a trip sometimes. Um, and then you've got to cull them and you know, mm-hmm. get rid of the rubbish. There's always rubbish. Every photographer takes complete rubbish. We're human beings. I think this is probably a time to look at some photos. I'm going to do my best to try and describe them on the on the podcast. So choose a photo that you think I can best audio describe. <laughs> well, there is the hippo one, if that's of any use. But um, let's... this is probably a good time. Like, if you are listening to this podcast, maybe just stop for five minutes, go on the internet, and go to David Fetter's. What's the website? DavidFetters.MyPortfolio.com. There you no go. No www. Go to that, have a look, see what you like, and turn the podcast back on, and you will get a bit of an idea of what we're looking at. So the photo I'm looking at now is... So many of the photos you've emailed me are of animals charging directly at you. Well, they're exciting. They're this fun. is an elephant. It's got its ears held high and wide. They're sort of... The, the bottom side of the ear is sort of flaring in towards the eyes, and it's... There's a there's a stream of dust being kicked up behind him and off its head. Okay, so I I realised the other day that I've never actually seen an elephant, not mm-hmm. in a zoo. I've I never can... been to Africa. Yeah, and and yet I feel like I know them because I've seen pictures. Yes, I am kind of scared of just looking at that photo. Yeah. That's so, good. Yeah, that could save your life being scared of it, as long <laughs> so, as you don't run. <laughs> so are you in a you're in a reserve here, or are you? Yes, yeah. it's, a, it's a national park. Um, Where are we in the? In that's Africa? in Zimbabwe. But I mean, you know, that, that, that's that's one bit. But what might be better is let's look at some beauty. Oh wow! So this is a bird skimming across. The, what, what are it's we? An, it's, an Africa, it's, it's an African skimmer. A skimmer. Okay. So hence the skimming. The, the lower mandible is longer. Uh huh. And it fishes by flying low over the water in the early morning and late evening, 
and dipping the lower mandible in the water, beak open. If it touches something, it snaps shut. So, so much of the wildlife <clears throat> photographer exhibition, you end up looking at artists who sort of specialise in a certain kind of yes. animal, a certain region of the world. You've already said that you've just been photographing in Hungary, you've been photographing in Africa. Do you just go where you fancy? Do yes. You, you don't want to specialise? You No. You're equally as interested in the, the, the bird life as you are in the reptilian or the mammal. It, go, it goes way beyond that. I mean, it's, it's a sort of question of, sort of trophic cascades, if you like. I am interested in the interconnection between the termite and the elephant. And that's a chain. Mm-hmm. We come along, man, and we let's kill the termites because they might eat our house. Uh, let's get rid of this in the chain. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, we even then do this with people. I'm a director and a trustee of a little school in rural Zambia mm-hmm. where they live in mud huts, no running water, no electricity. And we come along and we start educating the children where they wouldn't have had a particularly good education. Sure. So they go off to university and then they might go and work in the main city. Now, we've removed a brick from that vertical family wall. But should we... So who's going to till the fields? Because I'm the grandparent, I can't do it. I'm the parent, I can't do it anymore. Uh-huh. But should we deny that child the education? No, we have to look at the holistically. We have to put in place support systems for the generations either side. And the same with the animals. Mm-hmm. When you've got a problem, and if you've got an emotional problem, we have to. We can't change ourselves, but we can give ourselves coping mechanisms. And we need to give nature coping mechanisms to live alongside us. Of course, we're greedy. You know, Human nature is, you know, you want more and more. One of the things you've spoken to me about before, alongside the photography, is talking to children yes. back in this country, giving them talks. What message do you take to them? What is the, what have you learned from your twenty years photographing and your seventy years on this planet? What do you take to them? Depends which theme I've been asked to talk about. If it's photograph, if it's teaching them about photography, then I use photography as a metaphor for their lives, without them necessarily knowing about it. And I ask them to think differently and think for themselves. And I always say to them, there is no um, wrong way of taking the photograph. I'm not talking technically. I'm talking in composition terms. Um, There is your way. Mm -hmm. And you need to be true to that and have enough self-belief that if everybody doesn't like it, but you do, that's fine. Okay, you're not going to win a competition with it, but that's what you wanted to portray the message. Mm-hmm. So, you know, everyone is taking it from this angle. What if you took five steps to the left and took it from there and you bent down at the same time? Do you think that you have a unique style? Do you think that you have found your way of being a wildlife photographer? I found my way, whether it's unique or not, is another matter. Um, there are so many thousands. It's almost impossible for other people not to be doing similar things. Mm-hmm. Well, we were, I was with a group of people in Zimbabwe. There was a pack of African wild dogs, critically endangered, beautiful creatures. Uh, I crawled up to them within five feet and all that sort of stuff. It was a sunset, incredible light, and everyone was taking a photograph from them with the sun streaming at them from the left-hand side. Mm-hmm. So they weren't doing what's called contre-jour into the sun photography. Sure. I left them all. I walked 90 degrees around the circle. I've now got the wild dogs against the setting sun, which is blood red and what have you. Their fur is on fire around them, a ring of fire. Um, and it just the difference was incredible mm-hmm. just because I did not want to follow the crowd. I want to be different. I don't want that shot. I go to places and I don't, you know, I don't take the photograph. Have you ever felt that you've 
come across a place, come across an animal, and felt like you are intruding and have left them alone. Like, do you, oh yes. Do you feel like? Yes. Do you feel like sometimes you've overstepped the mark? Oh yes, yeah, that can happen by by mistake. You do not want the animal to be damaged. You know, people will argue that that you know that's you know what hypocrisy. No, I mean I'm with them, and if they've seen me and they're coming at me, there's nothing much I can do. Mm-hmm. One of the greatest pleasures is to walk up to a bunch of animals, photograph them, and then leave, and they have no idea you've been there. Absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. I've, I do that in this country. In the summer, I sleep out in the garden under the mm-hmm. stars, no no tent or anything. I get up at 4.30 in the morning and I go off and I'm photographing fox and roe deer and what have you. And I'm slightly, you know, I'm wearing greens and I've got a scrim net which I put over my head so sure. it breaks my shape. I have been sitting on the ground with a deer or a fox 10 feet away staring at me, trying to work out what I am. And it has no idea. You... And it's the most incredible feeling. You you talk about you've been warned off by these animals. The yes. tusks have got close to you, and yes. foxes wonder who you are. Have you ever been hurt? Uh, no, no, not yet. The occasional My mosquito way. bite, and that's probably about as bad as the yeah. yeah. Well, long may that continue. Yeah. Um, going back to the children and education, when you're talking not about photography but about their position in the world, yes. What do you say? Well, what I say to them is that you know, in in terms of making their choice. And this is something that people don't realize. You have a choice. It's not what you think that makes you happy or unhappy. It's how you think about what you think about that does that for you. Mm -hmm. So if somebody says, I think your photograph is rubbish, you can either get terribly hurt, go away and say, I'm useless, or you can say, that's your opinion. So I say to the kids, you know, you can be in the playground. Can I join in your game? No, go away. Children do that. Mm -hmm. That's fine. That's fine. It doesn't matter. It only matters if you allow it to matter. So you have choice. And in the same way with your photography, you have choice in your life. So if you can master the self-confidence in your photography of taking the stuff that you do. And I set up competitions at these schools because mm-hmm. they'll often say, come and teach. Them. I say, no, no, I'm not going to do that. What I'm going to do is we'll set up a competition. I'll teach them in the afternoon, composition, etc. And in the evening, we'll do a slideshow and talk to the parents about wildlife and what have you. And what I've told them, that you're going to be getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning with Mm -hmm. your kids. And then I come back a couple of months later and we judge the competition. And it is. I said, you will all be staggered at what your little 8, 9, 10-year-old children can do. As you said earlier with the Wildlife Photographer of the Year competition, these kids will come back with their vision. Yeah. You know, a child is doing a drawing. And how many parents say, no, that's not how you draw it? Well, it is. That's how the child wants to draw it. Don't interfere. Mm-hmm. Let its imagination run. There's a fantastic thing online. There's a father of a child who has, using Photoshop, ch- turned his child's drawings of animals into Photoshopped real, inverted commas, versions of it. So his the child's wonky elephant is then in out in the Sahara. Yeah. Not in the Sahara, but... Wherever. Wherever. And it's, 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 it's kind of fantastic. The one thing I've always loved about the children's photographs at the Wildlife Photographer of the Year competition is, more often than not, they're of insects. And you get this feeling that they view them as appropriately sized to them creatures. Yes. We see them as small and you get a macro lens and you try and sort of highlight the fact that there's yeah. a hidden world. They see them as almost as equals. Yes. Growing up as a child, a worm is fascinating, a woodlouse yeah. is fascinating and so much of of where we are now ignores the insect world. When I'm in the bush, if there are families there with a child, I'll often take them out and say, okay, let's find a little, ins- a little sp- there are little tiny little spiders which jump. Mm-hmm. I get one on my finger 
and they are tiny, 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 and then stare at it with my eyes wide open and bring my finger towards my nose. Uh-huh. And at a certain point, it jumps onto my nose and then back again, backwards and forwards <laughs> like this. The kids think this is incredible. <laughs> I think it's incredible. It is absolutely stunning. And then you carefully put it down. Put it back. You know, you see a, a line of ants, don't stamp on them. You walk over them, you know, mm-hmm. teaching my grandchildren, don't go to squash that snail. It has a place. Just the fact that it's eaten some of your vegetables, well, you know, that's fine. It has a place. It's doing a job. I was filming in Malaysia um, over the summer this year, and what struck me was the insect life more than anything else. Butterflies the size of dinner plates, whole trains of ants the size of sort of matchbox cars, and you just feel dwarfed by it. And the noise of the cicadas and the rainforest, and you suddenly realise that we may have the biggest footprint, but we certainly don't deserve it. No, we don't. No, we don't. So where are you going next? What's your next adventure? Um, I'm normally doing about eight to ten trips a year. But this this year, for various reasons, there are none, many, not many planned. But um, I'm going to go to back to Calcutta, I hope, this year. Take my wife. She's never been. And I've never been back to Calcutta. I've been to India many times, but not to Calcutta. But my next booked trip is to Zambia. Mm-hmm. So I'm doing a week's work in the school uh, in near Livingston. And then I fly to Lusaka and I jump on a boat, go three hours down the... Uh, Zambezi River to an island in the lower Zambezi Valley and staying on that island then going on to the mainland on the Zambian side and doing photography and, and stuff there. What are you hoping to find? People say to me, you know, what's your favourite animal? The one in front of me. Me? Absolutely. <laughs> Today you are my favourite animal yes. and it is literally that. What's I the hope most I see da- myself on the wall at the Natural History Museum. <laughs> <laughs> what's the most dangerous one? The one in front of me. Oh, that's not good. That is me as well. Do you know it? what I mean? It's it's. Um, uh, what's your favourite country? The one I'm in. It uh-huh. sounds as though I'm sitting on a fence. I'm not. I love them yeah, all for like their differences, and you know their societies. And I bury, try and bury myself in their society, in their cultures. Um, you know, eat the street food, straight off the street. You know, I have a stomach like a cast iron tank. Um, you know, when I was doing that trip in the seventies, I had seven weeks of dysentery from eating ceviche from this filthy Quechua woman by the road and it was fantastic it was the greatest weight loss program in the world <laughs> <laughs> and you know but what that was in itself was an incredible experience I write about it in, in the book some very funny moments of desperately needing the loo in a um, and opening going into a school and using it in Arequipa up in the Andes um, so <laughs> these memories stay with you don't they so it's burying myself in that culture finding out what makes them tick? On Saturday evening, uh, last about two years ago, I did. I was asked to do photography for an Indian wedding, which is mm-hmm. a three-day event. And what a privilege! Absolutely incredible privilege. So it was uh, over three days in Leeds, Leicester, and then London. And um, I didn't want any money for it. You know, you, you do things in life for other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they took my wife and I out to dinner in an Indian restaurant, Gujarati restaurant up near Harrow on Saturday evening and I think we were just about the only non-Indians there in this huge restaurant and we were in their culture eating their food with them their conversation uh-huh. about their lives uh, and yes I have enormous empathy with India you know I, it's where part of my heart lies uh-huh. um, but well, a, a tenth of your life was spent there yeah exactly it's very interesting actually because part of my heart lies there the first time I landed in Africa in 1999, we landed in Cape Town. And as we came in to land, 
I had this incredible Zen moment of I've come home. It's amazing how often people feel that with yes. Africa. Um, Whether it's subliminals or to suggestion, I don't know, whatever it is. And I feel at home there very much, you know, whether it's a genetic imprinting. I think they say it takes seven generations for imprinting to take place. Uh-huh. It must take a hundred generations for it to go. I don't know if you've read um, books like Sapiens and what have yeah, you, yeah. which is, you know, all about those sort of things. Um, and you know, I, I, I believe that. I believe, you know, we carry those imprints with us. And they're very, very, because they live in the amygdala, which is that basic first part of the brain. I describe to children how our brains develop mm-hmm. in the embryo. And because then it explains to them why they think as they are, why they react. And it isn't flight or flee. It's freeze, fright, flight or, f- uh, or flee. Mm-hmm. So that freeze moment, which all animals do, even we do mm-hmm. it, is the moment you capture the photograph. Brilliant. There are three questions we ask everyone who comes on the podcast. Yes. Um, the first one is if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world right now where would it be and you just having said you always want to be where you are are you going to suggest on Charlotte Street in Soho down that valley in Mongolia is the thing that some reason jumps to my mind I mean it's an impossible choice I'd be love to be walking through the acacia woodlands being hammered by tetsus in Zimbabwe or Zambia so why Mongolia then but just uh, you know it's I don't know, five times the size of everything else, and it's got three million or five million people in it. The sheer scale of the emptiness is—it's one of the unspoiled wildernesses we have left. And I was talking to the Mongolian guide there. We were living in yurts, uh-huh. right up in the mountains, or the Altai Mountains, way over in the west. And they're just at the threshold of tourism. And I said to them, you know, how are you going to? satisfy the tourist needs for Wi-Fi and air conditioning and that sort of stuff and maintain your culture. What did they say? He didn't have an answer because it's too new for them. It's too new and I, I worry about that because they are... You go to bush camps in Africa now, they've got three tents put into one the size of a modern house. Mm-hmm. They've Some of them have got air conditioning. Many have got air conditioning. They've got Wi-Fi, a la carte dining... My best moments are sleeping under a mosquito net on an island in the middle of the Zambezi River in Zambia. You know, elephants and things coming onto the hippos coming onto the island, cooking by the fire, just three of us, washing in the Zambezi River. I swim in the river. Um, what about the crocs? Let's move on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, there are ways of doing it, obviously. Yeah. Not, I don't actually have a death wish. That, to me, is absolutely at one. So those two walks I did at night under a full moon down these old... It, when I say the valleys, these are riverbeds. They'd taken vehicles up them, which mm. are ours. But boulders and all that, so twisting my ankle, walking an hour and a half. You know, wolves around, snow leopards around. Unbelievably beautiful, at one with nature. And I am the most vulnerable thing there. I'm so weak. Do you worry that your photos might inadvertently attract the wrong kind of... Yes. Yes, it can do. Yeah, they can. Yeah. Um, I mean, some of the the crazier stuff, which is a, a small percentage of what I do, uh-huh. um, most people wouldn't... You, presented with that, they just wouldn't even get out of the vehicle or whatever. So sure. I know they're not going to do that. But you do see people doing very stupid things. And, you know, I tend not to approach animals when there are other people around watching and that sort of stuff, people I don't know. 
Um, don't don't you know you don't want them thinking they can do it because you have to know what you're doing. You have to recognise the animal's sure. body language. You know what's it going to do in this particular situation? Will it stop? Well, I guess it sounds like survival of the fittest, doesn't it? You've learned to do it through trial and error, and uh, those that might want to try it might get more error and therefore not succeed. It's, in- it's interesting because the genetic imprinting is, you know, the, 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 you know people are worry, oh, worrying about the lions. lions that, when you're walking, generally, the lions are the least of your problems mm-hmm. because they are genetically imprinted to be terrified of us. So they're yelling and shouting at us is to drive us away. Right. And that is incredible because you know, animal conflicts, conflicts so many times. In some cases, with some animals, some mountain goats and whatever, it's become stylized. Uh-huh. It's by posing. They don't actually make contact. Sure. Now, we have the same. You know, hold me back. I'm going to hit you. you know, no hit. And then drugs and alcohol come along and change all of that. Present company accepted, which animal are you most afraid of? A tiger and polar bear. Because I'm of, sorry, I've given you two. No, no, because of They're previous encounters two, uh, or no, no. stories They're you've heard. They're the two animals that actively hunt human beings. Um, most others will. I mean, buffalo, lone male buffalo in the bush, terribly dangerous. Female elephant, terribly dangerous, seriously dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they will attack... But eventually, hopefully, we'll give up. A female elephant will probably try and follow it through. But, sure. but a, a tiger will circle you. A wounded buffalo will circle you and try and get you from behind. They're very clever. But tiger and polar bear, very, very dangerous. Um, okay, the second question that I ask everybody um, before we go down another rabbit hole. Should we colonize the moon? No. Leave it as it is? Yeah. What's wrong with that? Do you think we should have left the natural world as it is? Um, we could only have done that if we'd stopped breeding as prolifically as we did. And we now have, a, again, we have a complete uh, demographic problem with the way mm-hmm. races and what have you people are going. And in some countries, lots of children, other countries, not enough children. There's a huge imbalance going on. But no, I, I you know, yes, as much of the wilderness, what we have got left, we should leave. Uh-huh. Okay. We need to make another plan. Some people have, have compared humanity to bacteria. Do you think that's a valid comparison? Uh, bacteria have a use (laughs) (laughs) brilliant one final question Um, uh, if you could bring any species back from extinction what would you bring back I don't know the dodo um, would be wonderful to see one of those I've been waiting for someone to say dodo that's my answer is it as well I would love to see a dodo dodo. why did we do that Uh, I mean I could have chosen the, the Galapagos turtles, we ate them, we you know all that sort of stuff. You there's, know. there's an amazing story about why why there are no Galapagos turtles um, that survived, and it's because they were really really tasty. Yes. So the ships would pick them up, and the yes. Galapagos trying to bring them back because they were often sent out to bring them back. Yeah. And this is voyages huge, and then sort of get a third of the way there, and the biscuits would be running thin, and the weevils yeah. were no longer nutritious, and they're going right. Is that is that really fat? Yeah, absolutely. And being man, they took more than they needed. Yeah. And I've, I've stood in 1972 standing in a market, as it was British Honduras, and the capital was Belize, in a market by the sea, and there was a huge turtle lying on its back in the broad, in the sun. Why is it lying on its back? Well, it can't run away until it was needed to be cut up to be... It was alive. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just unbelievable cruelty to a living creature is totally unnecessary anyway could rant on that about that for hours and hours fantastic absolutely fantastic i think we've run out of time yep. unfortunately 
it's genuinely been a pleasure speaking to you on and off mic I can't thank you enough for coming in to talk to me huge pleasure it's a privilege thank you So you've been listening to me, David Oakes, and today's guest is a fantastic David Fetters. Um, you can follow David on Twitter, on at David Fetters. I never Twitter. I put photographs up on Twitter. Mm. I put photographs oh, on, on Facebook. And, and I put Instagram as well. And Instagram is mainly... I do it all through Instagram, yes. So go on to Instagram. Is that at David Fetters as well? Or? Yes, at David Fetters. Perfect. Um, you can follow us, as usual, on at Trees of Crowd Pod. Um, and I hope you join us again next time in a fortnight for our next episode. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. <laughs> Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, oh.